0: It's a matter of patience. No, not the science picture kind. It's all about ignorance
1: and greed and miracles fall a blind. The media parade and disjointed politics founded on petrochemical plunder, and we're its hostages.
0: That clip is from a song called Kyoto Now by the punk group Bad Religion. Many of our listeners who were politically or scientifically conscious in 1997 may remember the Kyoto Protocol. It was the result of the third United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP3. The protocol was an international climate-focused treaty to control human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. This was an effort to ease the impacts of climate change by changing what is within our power to control, our own emissions. While the United States signed the treaty, it never ratified it. The day this episode is released is supposed to be the last day of COP28 or the 25th United Nations Climate Change Conference since the one which birthed the Kyoto Protocol. Since Bad Religion released a song imploring U.S. government leaders to ratify the Kyoto Protocol all the way back in 2002, I thought it would be prudent to examine just how things are going a quarter of a century on from the Kyoto Protocol. Here's Dr. Michael Mann, climate scientist with the University of Pennsylvania, appearing on PBS NewsHour.
2: First of all, the host country, uh, United Arab Emirates, is a fossil fuel state. It's a petro state. And the president of COP 28, appointed by the host, uh, is in fact an oil executive. And so there are reasons to be um, skeptical from the very start. given just those plain facts, and everything we've seen since. uh, The fact that, again, the the president of COP28 uh, has been using language, um, claiming that uh, there's no science to back up the need to phase out fossil fuels when, of course, the science overwhelmingly indicates we have to bring carbon emissions down dramatically to avert catastrophic warming. And he even used climate denier tropes like, we will all be back in the caves if we make a clean energy transition.
0: Okay, so there has been movement from affluent nations, including the US, but if you listen to this show, I know you've heard about the effects of climate change we're already facing worldwide. In the US, we've dealt with historic wildfires, floods, droughts, storms, and more, and that's just within the last year or so. Did you know that between May through October of 2023, 96% of Americans experienced an extreme weather alert? Climate change is here, and it's already hurting and killing us. As is all too common when disaster strikes, people in what's known as the global south, or in what are categorized as least developed countries, or LDCs, are disproportionately harmed when climate change comes calling in a truly perverse twist of fate the least developed countries are also responsible for far far lower emissions of greenhouse gases both historically and now than are more affluent nations like the united states the european union and china to name just a few If the folks in the least developed countries didn't start the fire, then what are they supposed to do to fight it? The easy answer is that they need to phone a friend or several friends. Okay, maybe not actual friends, but at least the countries responsible for the overwhelming majority of greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution. Through the Loss and Damage Fund, conceived via past COP meetings, affluent nations, with their hands dirty from greenhouse gas emissions, are supposed to make sure the least developed countries have funds available to help mitigate the impacts of climate change on their people and infrastructure. But how much money are the wealthy nations really contributing? How much is needed to clean up the deadly messes left by extreme weather events, sea level rise, and other climate consequences? And how do you put a dollar value on not just property, but someone's homeland, their culture, and the entire history of their ancestors on Earth? While this may seem like a Sisyphean task, I'm happy to say that this work isn't the stuff of myth or legend. Real people are at COP28 negotiating climate policy on the global stage as I record this, and they are quite literally bargaining for the future of their people, their homes, and everything we all hold dear. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is Science. Today, I'm speaking with Hafij Khan, an environmental lawyer and climate negotiator. He has worked with the International Center for Climate Change and Development, the Center for Climate Justice Bangladesh, and for the least developed countries group on climate change, environmental justice, and natural resources issues. Hafij is actually at COP28 in Dubai right now, where he's speaking to me from, And so I just wanted to start by asking you if you could explain the concept of loss and damage in terms of climate impacts for our audience.
1: I just thank you so much. Um, You know, uh, tomorrow is going to start the COP28, but we are here already for preparatory meetings. Um, And I do uh, co-coordinate with Ambassador the 46 least developing countries, particularly on the uh, loss and damage. You know the loss and damage. There are three uh, policy pillars at this moment, at the global level. One is the mitigation, adaptation, and third pillar is the loss and damage. The global community is not taking uh, adequate efforts to mitigate, also failed to uh, adapt with the adverse impacts of climate change. Now, the loss and damage resulting from climate change is the reality our communities, our uh, states are facing uh, loss and damage uh, now every moment. For example, Bangladesh, we are facing very frequently the um, tropical cyclones and uh, floods, um, also sea level rays and associated saline water intrusion. So, um, our communities are facing loss and damage every moment, not only in Bangladesh, all over the world. With that context, global community is now is more than 12 years, uh, we are trying to negotiate and, uh, and develop the global policy regime at the UNFCCC on loss and damage. Particularly for COP28, there are some crunch issues. I'd be happy to explain the crunch issues for COP28.
0: Oh, please. I, I would love to hear them.
1: COP28 is particularly important for global stock tank. The Paris Agreement, it doesn't have the rigorous compliance mechanism. Global Stock take, the Transparency um, Framework and the Compliance Committee, uh, I would say it's a triangle uh, compliance approach for the Paris Agreement. This is the first time for Paris Agreement and the parties are um, negotiating for Global Stock take to be adopted here. Uh, Secondly, the global goal on adaptation. Parties uh, is going to adopt uh, global goals and uh, targets for the adaptation. And third and most important, importantly, um, parties of the Convention on the Paris Agreement is going to adopt the recommendations put forwarded by Transitional Committee for Loss and Damage Fund. And it is now a bit critical. Uh, it is uh, politically critical. In fact, you know, uh, last year at COP 27, Uh, Parties agreed to establish a loss and damage fund, a new funding arrangement for loss and damage. Uh, Thereafter, a transitional committee was formed. Twenty-four members of the transitional committee, also twenty-four advisors worked throughout the year. I'm very happy to share that I was also a transitional committee member for a short time, but as an advisor to least developing country transitional committee member, I worked throughout the year. So, Transition Committee uh, made some recommendations uh, in accordance with, with their mandates, now parties to adopt at, uh, here at COP28.
0: I know people are going to be curious about this. So you're a lawyer and you're not a scientist, but you must work with scientists all the time to make this stuff happen. Yep. Um, so how are scientists and lawyers working together to quantify the terms uh, and the harms of human-driven climate change?
1: Science gives us clear directions for the politicians and the policy makers. You know, IPCC is uh, giving us clear direction that loss and damage is the reality. If you look at the sixth assessment report, uh, the IPCC clearly identified the limits of the adaptation and reality of the loss and damage. IPCC six assessment report talked about economic and non-economic loss and damage. And um, the to ecosystems, particularly, so that is really uh, threatening for global communities. So science tells us clear directions and evidences of, on loss and damage. So now we are the policymakers trying to develop the relevant policies. Just yes, you know that we are involved with in negotiation process for last more than a decade. So far, we got on the Warsaw International Mechanism, that's an institute under uh, UNFCCC. And uh, there is an executive committee is formed under that uh, international mechanism. It was in 2013. And then again, to, uh, 2019, parties agreed to establish the Santiago network. That's the technical arm of this international mechanism. Thirdly, uh, we got the Los Damage Fund. Now you see under this international Mm, mechanism, uh, we got the exit committee, that is, we do consider as a um, policy arm. Secondly, Santiago Network, we do consider as a technical arm and finally the Los Angeles Fund. So, policy arm, technical arm and the financial facility under this mechanism, uh, now is a comprehensive institutional um, mechanism established under the year of Now it's challenged to operationalize these different institutions. Particularly at COP28, we we, we need to um, adopt the relevant decisions to operationalize the Santiago network. Also, we need to adopt the mechanism that would operationalize the loss and damage fund.
0: It sounds like the groundwork has been laid to make real change internationally here. I'm curious about the loss and damage fund specifically.
1: So I'd be happy to talk about the loss and damage fund particularly as i was talking that at cop27 parties is to establish a loss and damage fund uh, under that transitional committee was uh, formed and uh, throughout the year transitional committee worked they met f- five times in this year uh, and uh, uh, the works of the transitional committee was informed by the uh, technical works uh, by the secretariat also there was a TSO, uh, the Technical Support Unit, that was formed by the Secretariat. Uh, TSU also um, developed some of the relevant papers. So you see, the uh, works of the Transitional Committee was really informed by the workshops, submissions by the parties and other stakeholders, um, and also technical papers by the Secretariat. It was a um, methodological work, I would say, uh, the Transitional Committee followed throughout the year. Finally, they recommended um, 17 pages of documents. One is the governing instrument for the fund. And uh, second uh, is some recommendations related to funding arrangement. So in terms of the covered decision, uh, basically it in invited World Bank to host the secretariat of the fund and to operationalize this fund as financial intermediary fund. That is called FIP. You might know that there are other many uh, FIP or financial intermediary fund established by the um, World Bank, but it is a really different. Why different? You know, soon after an event, climatic event like cyclone or flux, community needs to be supported immediately, including some financial resources they need to receive. So, how this fund, fund hosted by the World Bank can support the vulnerable community soon after an event. So, if proposed, this fund will take trigger-based approach. It means soon after the event, the fund needs to release the fund so that can support. It is very, uh, very new for any financial entities. You know, mostly the funding arrangements are project-based. Parties develop the projects, programs, and they get access to the funds. So this is not the project-based approach. It needs to be trigger-based. That is the challenge for this fund. Secondly, it needs to be accessed directly by the vulnerable states. Um, we, uh, the Transitional Committee suggested that this fund should um, be operationalized with an innovative uh, mechanism that can support directly to the vulnerable states that can support annual budget of the vulnerable countries so that uh, they don't need to uh, ask money for soon after an even, rather government uh, can release the financial resources to the vulnerable communities.
0: This is so interesting. And obviously I'm from the United States and I know we are one of the countries that needs to pay into the funds uh, for the response to these disasters, these triggered events. So, have you seen any progress in getting the wealthier nations to actually make their contributions to the fund, or is that happening at this COP28 event?
1: This is very different fund. Um, that's why World Bank is going to work next few months after this COP. Uh, there is a uh, There will be a board for this fund, and the board and World Bank will work together to design um, the fund uh, that uh, that can help the vulnerable communities. Now the source, who are gonna pay for this fund? So it was a bit difficult issue. Source, nobody wanted to pay for this fund because you know loss and damage is sensitive, and it it involves the liability and uh, compensation issues. So developed country uh, were uh, not really willing to. Uh, pay for this, Uh, so um, during the negotiation of the traditional committee, uh, we found that um, developed countries are not really willing to pay. Even uh, some other developing countries who are in a position to do so, they're also not uh, agreed to pay because nobody wants to take the obligation, unfortunately. So far, we know the European Union um, is going to make substantial places uh, for this fund at COP28. Uh, Even U.S. John Kerry said that they're going to place some millions of dollars, which is now already criticized. Um, Millions of dollars are not uh, enough for this fund. We need trillions of dollars for this fund. So so far, I know uh, that during the preparatory meeting, COP presidency is really uh, interested to operationalize, not only to operationalize the fund at this COP, also to get places. At least um, 500 million dollars, so that it can operationalize very, very soon.
0: We don't need millions. Millions is not going to do it. Uh, this is yeah. such a massive scale, and and I had a question about that too. So when you're looking at damages and harms from climate change, uh, sea level rise is one that we're feeling here in the United States. I know in Bangladesh, that's a concern as well. Um, For example, in the U.S., um, we had Superstorm Sandy in 2012, and that caused over $8 billion in damages, and that's what it would have caused, you know, more than what it would have caused without sea level rise. So we can't just put dollar amounts on things. Um, Like Vanuatu, for example, is going to lose not just their land, but their whole culture. How do you quantify losses of things that don't have a price tag on them?
1: And that's a very important question, and uh, now how to quantify the loss and damage? You already said that um, economic loss and damage, also non-economic loss and damage, like uh, loss of values, culture, heritage, uh, for, The migration is the classical example for loss and damage. Migrated people are they, are they are losing their home state, they are losing their culture, values, so how to compensate for this? Is uh, is very easy. We don't need to be a lawyer to identify the policy response to loss and development. That must be compensation. However, uh, we, the parties uh, at the UNFCCC, particularly for the Paris Agreement, uh, we agreed to avoid the discussion on liability and compensation at the policy level, UNFCCC level. However, um, it must be obligatory because to respond the loss and damage, we need to take the obligation in terms uh, based on the historical responsibility. So what you said about the quantification to quantify the loss and damage, damage we need to develop some sort of innovative tools and methodologies. I'm very happy to let you, uh, to let you know that there is an executive. Executive Committee, I said, um, Executive Committee is now working with, with, in collaboration with some of the expert groups to develop some sort of tools and methodologies that would be really helpful to assess or quantify the loss and damage. But uh, those tools and methodologies that are going to be uh, developed by the Executive Committee of the Washer International Mechanism, that needs to be translated taking into account the national circumstances, for example, Bangladesh. If we consider a global standard uh, standard tools and methodologies, we need to translate it uh, considering our circumstances and national governments need to take initiative to assess the loss and damage Be- because assessment is quite important. Based on the assessment, we can identify the right approaches to deal with loss and damage. Once we can identify the right approaches, then you need to take some initiatives to institutionalize those approaches. Finally, you need some legal mandates to um, assist the um, communities, also policymakers, to act at the national level.
0: I really appreciate you explaining it that way. And so I wanted to ask you if there is one thing that you'd like everyone in the more affluent nations to understand about how human-caused climate change is affecting the least developed countries. What was that one thing you want us to understand? What is that?
1: Not only the least developing countries like Bangladesh is facing loss and damage. Loss and damage are facing all over the world. You talked of the sending and um, the U.S. U.S. people also are also going to face huge, massive loss and damage. But why the least developing countries are most vulnerable? You know, in terms of capacities in terms of financial resources these least developing countries um, are really vulnerable not only the geographical locations but also in terms of capacities and um, financial resources technical um, capacities these uh, least developing countries are particularly vulnerable that's why transitional committee for the loss and damage fund they recommended the particular um, circumstances of uh, small island, um, island developing countries, also the least developing countries. In the fund, the Transition Committee recommended minimum percentage from the floor that would be allocated allocated to the seasonal disease. That's very important. I would like to add that, uh, that the uh, during the works of the transitional committee, uh, the transitional committee members from the developed countries, they wanted to particularly establish this fund, seeds seats and indices. However, some other developing countries are good that they're also vulnerable. Yeah, uh, I do agree with them. Like Pakistan faced the huge flood, uh, so. They know the reality of loss the loss devastation, like Pakistan, some other developing countries also vulnerable. Considering this vulnerability, the Committee recommended that the board of this fund would develop further guidelines how this fund to be utilized to support the vulnerable developing countries. So, six LDCs, also other uh, vulnerable developing countries would be eligible to access from this fund.
0: And it sounds like there have been a lot of thoughts and plans going into this to make sure that uh, the countries that need it the most are going to be able to get the help. Um, Now we just have to put the money in the fund and make sure that works. And so there is one question that I like to ask all of my guests on our podcast. And so you know that I'm with the Union of Concerned Scientists. And so my question to my guests is always the same. In your case, it's Hafij. Why are you concerned?
1: Okay. Uh, why I'm concerned, actually, uh, because I'm from Bangladesh, from one of the most vulnerable countries. So even I'm a negotiator, but I'm really happy to introduce myself as a community lawyer. I'm working with, with the vulnerable communities. It is now around uh, 20 years. I know the reality. So uh, one of the negotiation sessions, I was ar- arguing from... A, a negotiator from developed country uh, he was talking I need to back I need to go back to the capital. So I, ne- I I I cannot commit without the concern of the capital. Then I was talking, yes, I do agree you need to go back to your capital but I need to go back to my communities. So this is my moral obligation um ethical obligation to act for my vulnerable communities. To be honest, I work for Los angeles from my heart. So it's my, it's, it's my very emotional and sensitive issue. And that's my, uh, that's my concerns, actually.
0: That is actually incredibly powerful. I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that concern because I think it's easy for us who aren't at COP um, and who aren't impacted by these events. If you just watch it on the news, it doesn't seem real. But when you hear someone say, this is my community, this is my home, that helps put a human face on it and it makes it easier to understand and and relate to. So I think the work you're doing is amazing. And uh, is there anything that you're really hoping will happen at this COP meeting?
1: I I will tell you about about the hope later, but before that, uh, I would like to request, um, I think every concerned citizen of the globe, we need to think about it. We need to take some responsibility particularly the concerned citizen from the developed country countries they need to put pressure at their government so that they take some obligations to pay for uh, not only for loss and damage but first of all they need to take high ambitious target for mitigation because mitigation is the best option to avoid the loss and damage you know just we are talking about the loss and damage fund If it is their money, money cannot help you at all. To some extent, so uh, we need to mitigate first, then of course adaptation. Adaptation can minimize the potential risk of the loss and damages. So adaptation is the second priority. Finally, the loss and damages. I always do say mitigation, adaptation, or loss and damages is a is a continuum. I hope that parties here at COP 28 is going to adopt the recommendations put forward by the transitional committees as it is and to take for the initiatives to operationalize the fund by next year. And by, by this time, I hope that particularly developed country parties make some substantial places here at COP28 so that immediately we can operationalize this fund and to support the millions of vulnerable communities and states from all over the world
0: I recorded our conversation immediately pre-conference and since then the nations of the world adopted an agreement to operationalize the loss and damage fund established last year at cop 27 while this is welcome news the loss and damage fund needs more attention and investment We also need to continue efforts to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for their role in the climate crisis. This excerpt from a blog by UCS's Dr. Rachel Cletus provides a lot of needed context. Now that the fund is operational, some countries have started to announce funding pledges toward it, and others may come forward in the days ahead. The overall total as of today is a little over $400 million the United States pledge of $17.5 million, which will have to get approval from Congress, is frankly pathetic and amounts to an insult given the scale of losses and damages being experienced around the world. For comparison, the floods in Pakistan in 2022 are estimated to have cost that nation in excess of $30 billion. And as another point of comparison for scale, The U.S. annual military budget was $816.7 billion in fiscal year 2023. Funding for loss and damage represents a responsibility. It's what we should be willing to pay, given the harm our heat-trapping emissions are imposing on nations that have contributed practically nothing to causing climate change. The scale of funding that will be needed for loss and damage has been estimated to be $150 to $400 billion per year by 2030. There's a long way to go for the loss and damage fund to truly deliver climate justice. Now that it's finally operational, our task is to ensure policymakers live up to their promises. Please visit ucsusa.org to read all of our COP28 coverage. Thanks to Rich Hayes and Omari Spears for production help, to Carly Phillips, Delta Myrner, Hannah Poor, and Rachel Cletus for providing technical expertise for this episode, and to Anthony Iring for our multimedia magic.